say, can I live with this, with this decision I'm making right now down the road? And I think that if we all thought about the world that way, because that's most certainly how I thought about it when I was, you know, 11 years old and 12 when it went to trial, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right thing to do? Yes, it is. Without the support of my family, by the way, I was thrown to the foster care system, you know? So it was just like, there you are, there's the wolves. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial. In when I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Mover Nation, <laughs> what's going on? You know, I did an interview with Radio New Zealand, and I thought, you know what? I'll post it here. I'll let you guys check it out. I thought it was a pretty good interview. I talked about some stuff, you know. I never really know randomly, like, what I'm going to say on an interview because people sometimes ask me the same questions, and I always try to change it up. But uh, check it out. This is with Radio New Zealand. I think it's called 9 to Noon or something like that. So <laughs> check it out. Hope you guys enjoy. Prices to boost sales. So I am on Radio New Lowered Zealand. prices in markets, including the US, UK, Nine and China, to compete with rival manufacturers. Very Earlier this year, Tesla's boss, Elon Musk, said he believed pursuing higher sales with lower profits was the right choice for the company. Seven and a half minutes past 10, Collier Landry was just 12 years old when he was thrust into the national spotlight as the lead witness in his mother's murder in the Ohio town of Mansfield. He told the jury how months earlier he overheard his father killing his mother, Noreen Boyle, in the next room and went on to provide police with enough information to secure an arrest. This was against the wishes of family members. It was an extraordinary act of courage. The story was widely reported on at the time, but much less is known about what happened to young Collier in the years to follow. His father's relatives did not forgive him for testifying, and his mother's side of the family distanced themselves from him out of fear he might take after his dad, so to speak. He lost his house, his dog, the three-year-old sister his parents had just adopted. Now 45, Collier Landry's just released a podcast series called The Survivor Squad, which tells the unheard stories of survivors and the impacts of our seemingly endless consumption of true crime as a form of entertainment. He co-hosts the podcast with Tara Newell, and those who've seen the Netflix series Dirty John may be familiar with her story. Uh, she killed John Meehan in self-defence after he murdered her mother, Deborah. Colin Landry is with us now. Kia ora, as we say in New Zealand. Welcome. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Could I just place one correction, though? Uh, John Meehan did not murder Deborah Newell. She is alive and well. <laughs> uh, he was stalking oh. her and the family. She was married to John Meehan. But John Meehan was stalking the family, so he came after Tara with the intent of murdering her. Excuse me. We'll correct that error. <laughs> no Thank worries. you, Colleen. <laughs> no worries. Uh, it's kind of important. It's a little okay. important. Look, let, let, let's go back over your story, because there were two parts. There are three parts to this, really. Yeah. And the first is just the extraordinary courage of a boy, but also the trauma of a crime like this and, um, and, what, it, and what it does to a person's life. And your own remarkable story in that respect um, do you look back now? I mean, it's, it's incredible, you know, as an adult uh, to do what you did. But do you look back now as an adult and are you amazed at that 12 year old and what he survived and what he did? It's it's a it's a very good question. And it um, 
you know, I, I made a film called A Murder in Mansfield, which actually played at your Dock Edge Film Festival in Auckland and um, then down south. But I, um, I, you know, was watching myself on the witness stand in the premiere. And I looked at that little boy and I go, I, I haven't changed one bit. <laughs> it's still the same person. So I think that it's interesting when you look back at that and I feel like my mother used to make a joke. She, you know, being cheeky, she would say, you know, he's 10 going on 40. And she really was right because I haven't changed that much since that kid. And the, the courage or, or whatever you want to call it, or maybe the naivete of, of going up against a monster at that age, it's still the fundamental core of who I was and who I continue to be and who I am today. And it um it's something I look back at and I most certainly don't regret it, that's for sure. I um I'm I'm proud of myself. And I knew at that age that I would become this age and I would have to look myself in the mirror and I knew it was a choice of making uh, of right or wrong, doing the right thing. And would I be able to live with that for the rest of my life if I didn't do the right thing? And that is ultimately the greatest decision I ever made. It's a remarkable maturity and a remarkable agency for a child of that age. Often, you know, many, most of us, thank goodness, have never experienced the extreme of trauma that, that you did here. But often what happens to a child is kind of absorbed. They don't know any better. They don't know the rules of the world. They don't get to make the rules of the world. And it's kind of absorbed and it's like, okay, what's next? And then it is as an adult often that the true confrontation of, of the scale of it impacts. But listening to you, you sounded like you had remarkable agency, not in what happened clearly, but in what you chose to do afterwards. Yeah. And, and, and it, that's what it's about. It's about that choice. Right. And it's something that when I talk to, let's say, young people who are, you know, often find themselves in challenging situations or growing up and, you know, nowadays is quite different than when I grew up and, and probably when you grew up, you know, technology is right at the, our hands, our fingertips, and, and it's a whole different world. And I, and I tell them, you know, I say, look, you have to think about, about can I live with the decisions that I'm making today in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years down the road? Uh, you have to, I mean, there, you know, you want to live in the moment, but you also want to understand that the decisions that you make will, will have a greater impact than you right now in the world for good and bad, by the way, like making conscientious choices to change the world around you in such a positive way, but also in a negative way or not standing up for what's right. And it's not to say people should take on the role of being a vigilante or anything like that, but you, you have to say, can I live with this, with this decision I'm making right now down the road? And I think that if we all thought about the world that way, because that's most certainly how I thought about it when I was, you know, 11 years old and then 12 when it went to trial, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right thing to do? Yes, it is. Without the support of my family, by the way, I was thrown to the foster care system, you know? So it was just like, there you are. There's the wolves. <laughs> Have fun. It's just, look, it is just extraordinary. Um, and we, we should say relevant to this was the fact that there was a history of violence uh, and aggression uh, at your father's hands, right? Um, so, so you know, it, it wasn't like this was um, 
you already had experienced what was wrong and you were ready to talk about what was wrong. But as you say, you had family members trying to stop you even talking to the police. You had to almost do that and you had to seize a moment in order to be able to tell the police what you thought had happened. Yes, um, absolutely. And, you know, it's it, it, on that point, you know, my father said, you know, we're not going to call the police. We're not going to call the FBI, but, but, but when he left that day, cause this was the morning of December 31st, 1989, I grabbed a, uh, I grabbed a portable telephone. My mother just bought, I ran upstairs, locked, I had taken down the names and numbers of all my mother's friends and hid them into a, in a stuffed animal. I went into my bathroom, uh, my mother's bathroom and locked the door and called all of them and said, this is what happened. I need you to call the police. And when the police came out, my grandmother was hovering around, who was my father's mother, and she would not let me speak to them. But it wasn't until a detective came the next day and she you know, was apoplectic and went and ran to the telephone to phone my father. I said, give me your card. I go back to school tomorrow. Give me your card. And it's when I walked into the principal's office and it was uh, January 2nd, 1990, I came in there and I said, you need to call this man and get him down here. And, he, and I spent four hours telling him everything. And I just started gathering clues over the next, you know, 25 days with him. And it was, it was such an extraordinary circumstance to be able, because so many children suffer domestic violence or abuse and they can't get out of the home, right? I had a safe place where I could talk. That was school. So I could literally say, and thank God that the police detective came there. I mean, I think he thought I was, you know, off my rocker, but eventually he was like, there's something to this kid in this story. And for me to be able to share it with him so openly in such a safe space is absolutely incredible because not a lot of people get the opportunity to do that. Let's talk about the experience, if you would, of the justice system as a child. And it's hard to separate that from the experience of the media uh, as a child. And the media's technical role is as the eyes and ears of the public, this is open justice, this is transparency, everyone should see what's happening. In reality, we all know it becomes something exploitative uh, far too often. Could you talk us through a little of of that experience, not only as a as a witness, right? Um, but as a as child witness. It, so it you know, I just thought of this while you're asking me this question of how it would be. So obviously the media is a lot different than that it is now, right? We don't have to, you know, in social media, the internet, we didn't have any of that. So it was all newspapers and television back then. I think that my approach to it would be a lot different if I hadn't heard my father murder my mother, if I didn't know that he did it, if I wasn't there to witness the behavior, if I didn't see his behavior uh, after the murder and the clues that he was dropping. I, I, if I thought he was innocent, I might have a different view of it. It would have tainted me. But I knew what I heard and I knew what he did. So my experience, well, first of all, I wasn't allowed to see any media. I wasn't allowed to speak to anyone. You know, I was isolated in foster care until the trial pretty much. Um, a very limited engagement with people because it was, I grew up in the, it was like the OJ Simpson trial in my town. It, everyone was talking about it. It was always on the television. It was always in the newspaper. So I wasn't allowed to read the newspaper. I wasn't allowed to watch TV. <laughs> like, you know, I, it, it was very odd. Um, I can't imagine what people go through nowadays with the constant bombardment of social media and the navigation of parasocial relationships and what that looks like. But for me, and, and it's very exploitative, which is why we do this this new podcast, Survivor Squad. It's why I've done my podcast, Moving Past Trauma, where I talk about these issues as well. But it is 
something that we have to think about. Like the media will take it and jump on it like wildfire, whatever the conjecture is that they want to spin. And that is, a, you know, it, it's it's a heavy burden for anyone now who is dealing with the justice system, because nowadays, at least in the States, it feels like this is an innocent until proven guilty, but it's also trial by by media, trial by social media nowadays and internet sleuths and, and armchair detectives weighing in and podcasters and, and true crime aficionados weighing in on what happened. And really nothing matters, but what the perpetrator did, what the, how the family is reacting to this and coping with the, the loss of their loved one and what the justice system is doing about it. Those are the only things that matter. <laughs> you know, all this conjecture only su- serves a lot of times to distract, to speculate and to injure those around on both sides, by the way, the perpetrator and the victim's families. How are you okay, if you mind me asking? Because as you said, you lost, first and foremost, you lost your mother in the most awful circumstances, but you also lost your remaining family um, uh, and, you know, the ostracism that you've talked about. You're in foster care. You lost... um, as we said, the newly adopted sister and, and, and the pet and everything that makes up a 12-year-old's life in a way when it comes to people. And and who helped you, Collier? Who helped you? Because, because some people will succumb. Some people will succumb and no one can blame them to, to such trauma and to such loss. Who helped you be okay? <laughs> you know, I was I was talking to someone last year who was a trauma therapist. And she said, you know, you're the outlier, right? And I said, Mm -hmm. what do you mean? She said, well, if you were under a bridge in East LA shooting heroin and and crying or curled up into a ball, no one would blame you, honestly, because of what you've been through, but you've chosen not to do that. You chose to do something. And I said, well, that was just, that was just like the spirit of my mother, because I just, I was determined right there as a child to say, I'm not going to succumb to this. I'm not going to let this monster destroy me. I'm not going to let him destroy my family. I'm not going to let him destroy uh, what my life could be. And if, this is not to say that I haven't had my struggles. Of course I have. You know, I, I battle, you know, you know, just, you know, insecurities from childhood and, and you know, the fight, flight, appease and, and you know, that whole thing. And, you know, and I had a very tumultuous relationship with my father for my entire life, right? So there's a lot of damage and wounds that are still there, but I'm very healthy about it. But I, I just didn't see going down a dark road as being a path that was even a possibility for me. I didn't even see it as an option. I just said, I'm going to do something positive with this. And I said that the morning that my mother was missing, I made that decision right then and there that this is not going to destroy me. This is not going to break me. I'm going to move forward. And whatever this looks like, it's just going to be one foot in front of the other, you know, chop wood, carry water, (laughs) the fundamentals, just do it. And I think that I did a Ted talk a few years ago and I was saying how I feel like when you're going, when you go through such massive trauma that you being in a state of action, instead of saying why, we say what now and we get to that and that is ultimately what leads us through the trauma and le- it's it's being of action and in action that allows us to process it in our own unique way doing something about it and i think you see that with a lot of people that go through traumatic events they get out and they do something and when you do something about it you feel like you're somehow in control of that 
because all the control was taken away from you. And yes, losing my family was tragic. You losing my, my mother, my father, you know, my father, I also lost my father, you know, and my sister and going into foster care and the rejection that I faced from my family. You know, I had bonded with the detective from the case, David Messmore, and I was going to be adopted by his family and I wasn't, the court didn't award me to them. So I moved in with strangers and they took on this kid with these challenges of, you know, because I stayed in the same small town that all of this happened. So I was like a little celebrity in a way, but for all the wrong reasons, it wasn't because of who I was in a positive light. It was because my father created this, did this heinous act. And I was on television testifying and in newspapers and all of this. So I was known, I wasn't, I wasn't known for something positive. I was known for something negative, even though it was positive because what I did with it was positive, but it was always a stigma that, that haunted me my entire life. And that also was a motivating factor to like, just keep, you know, keep your head level and just move forward yeah. and do something with this. Holly Landry, I guess, his latest podcast series is called The Survivor Squad. The earlier one was Moving Past Trauma. You're listening to Nine to Noon on RNZ National. You you reflected on this, um, again, that maturity evident from such an age. Even in your teens, you were reflecting on what had happened, the scale of what had happened. Another thing that someone might do is just repress it, actually literally repress it and, and even forget things, right? But but you were aware of it and thinking it through, right, even from, from your teens. At what point did you begin to um, kind of crystallize around the idea of a project like this and, and the podcasts and talking about, specifically talking about not just trauma, but our obsession with true crime uh, and what it is we need to think about? When did that begin to materialize? Well, all of, so obviously podcasting didn't exist back in my teens, but where this all started was, is after the trial and after I was adopted and when I was in my mid-teens to late teens, I started thinking, you know, it's really interesting because we look at the justice system, we go, okay, the, the, the victim is dead, the bad guy goes to jail, the, states get, the state gets his restitution, the judge's gavel hits, and we say next, and we never examine the consequences of violence on communities, ancillary victims, the families, the friends, the schoolmates, the, the, the community as a whole um, at large, right? And I felt very driven and passionate about that. And so that led me to move to Los Angeles to become a filmmaker. And I spent well over a decade learning the craft of filmmaking. And I partnered up with Barbara Koppel, two-time Oscar winner, and John Morrissey, who did American History Acts. And we made A Murder in Mansfield, which is a documentary. And that's that was... I did that because that was like, okay, I'm going to do something with my story. I've always wanted to do this. I, I, you know, whatever it looks like, I didn't know what it was going to be. It ended up being this documentary. Right. And then the, then after the documentary was out, I'm traveling around the world and it's all over television and et cetera, et cetera. Then I said, okay, what's next? Okay. I'm going to do a podcast. And I started, it was originally called moving past murder. It's now called moving past trauma. And then through my through that Moving Past Trauma podcast, I connected with other fellow true crime survivors like Tara and Deborah Newell um, and, and true crime celebrities like Chris Hansen, who, who does To Catch a Predator, and other victims and survivors who have been through harrowing experiences and come out the other side and are still processing and, and seeing how 
this insatiable appetite of true crime has shaped the narrative of survivors. And I said, you know what? I don't want that to be that. And that's what Tara thought too. And I said, let's do a podcast together where we talk about this, but we let the survivors tell their story in their own words, outside the media headlines, outside the conjecture from the tabloids, outside of the speculation, outside of the courtroom, outside of the perpetrator this specific thing of what their real story is. And that's how we started Survivor Squad. So it was a long time coming. It had the genesis of it took many different forms until what it is now. And probably three, five years from now, it'll be something different. Or you know what I mean? That's the beauty of doing something and being so immersed in something that you're so passionate about. And and also to be artistic with it because I'm an artist. I went to music school. I'm a, that's my thing. And I share you know, and film and, and film and television, that's my medium. And to be able to share the story and constantly evolve it to help other people and share my experiences through doing that, that is, you know, that's what makes me get up, put two feet on the floor and say, let's go. <laughs> the other aspect of this is hearing in their own words where the survivors are at now. Um, Absolutely. And we can do two things. We can either... Uh, Forget their, uh, forget them or their stories beyond what happened to them. Or uh, secondly, sometimes media will pursue them when they don't want to speak. Um, or thirdly, these stories are told sometimes through quasi-fictional productions, um, and again with their own voice silent. Yeah. So, what, what what have we learned from hearing from these um, people that you speak to in the podcast? What what are some of the things that you would draw on? Everyone's different, right? But what you would draw on is the wisdom of, of, of their experience. Well, the first one would be Tara. When I interviewed Tara, because Dirty John, I mean, I had friends that worked on the show and I didn't even know anything about it. I never watched it. And then I heard her experience and how the story was exploited and became a television series without, you know, they just get, if it gave an interview and it became this huge podcast, they were just trying to raise awareness and then everyone monetized it. And, and it, you know, it's the commodification of true crime. Right. And that's why, how we connected. And that was the first part. And then when these survivors come and share their stories, you know, the thing is, is that both Tara and myself come with a, with a level of street cred or credibility. We've earned our stripes in this world. We've been through it. And you're probably not going to find two people that are still alive that have been through the amount of severe you know, trauma that we have been through. And it, it creates a really safe space with other survivors to open up. And even in people, you know, the Delphi case in Delphi, Indiana is one of the most popular cases you know, it, it, there's so much conjecture out there on, on the internet about it and speculation and videos creators have done. And, you know, we speak to Kelsey German and it was her sister that was murdered along with um, her best friend, Abigail. And she feels safe to come into our space and share uh, her story because we have that same background. We have, we share that commonality that she doesn't have with other people. You know, survivors, when we're talking to them, we're not mentioning the perpetrators and we're bringing them in and saying, you tell us in your own words what happened. Well, I don't care what the headline said. I don't care what this, how did this make you feel? How does this translate? What is this, you know, tell me your side of the story. Tell me how it affected you. And, it, and it's really cathartic for them because it gives them the chance to set the record straight. 
What is your view on this absolute obsession with true crime that uh, is not only ubiquitous and in, in, in every format, but is so because humans don't seem to be able to get enough of it. I, I don't know whether it's primal in some ways. I don't know whether it speaks to our worst fears. I don't know whether it speaks, as you were saying, to that idea something happens in our you know, in our village or in our tribe, um, that is uh, taboo, that is awful, uh, whether it just hits on that, on something primal. But what is your view on it and just how prevalent it is? Does it serve any useful purpose? It's really interesting that you ask this because if you'd asked me this three months ago, I might have a different opinion of it. <laughs> and the reason why is I was interviewing a woman and uh, I asked her what her opinion was on true crime. Uh, she has a podcast and she was a, uh, she survived sexual assault as a child and she was a runaway and all of this. And we got into this conversation and I said to her, I said, I don't really understand the obsession with true crime. This almost insatiable out appetite. I don't under, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't want my children to be consumed by it. I wouldn't, you know, it's just, I don't want people to think about murders and this, that, and the other are these horrific things. And she said to me something and I will never forget it. She said, Collier, yes, people true turn in because they want to hear the story. They want to hear the, 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 you know, sensationalization of the story. And they want to hear this, you know, fantastical portrayal of it or these, you know, this world that they have no relation to. She said, but then you're forgetting about the people that you don't see that listen to it, that suffer in silence, and they say, that person got justice. That person got justice for their mother, themselves, their, their, their sister, their brother, their whatever, what have you, right? And they find solace in it because they never can. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, oh, that's such a great point. So now my, my opinion is a lot different. And I think that, yes, there's, you know, obviously people get rich off this. It, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, as they say in the news business. On the flip side, though, you, you know, there are people that really tune into this to, to go, I'm going through something similar so they can make it. And to be honest with you, if I had, if these stories were available when I was going through everything, I might turn into, tune into them to say, oh, that person uh, that person made it. So I'm going to be able to make it too, because I would do that with other people. I would see people and be like, Oh, what is their story? I wonder how they made it through or they, you know, I think we all, you know, put someone up on a pedestal that we idolize, whether it's a sports figure or a, or a business mogul or a creative, an artist or something. And we go, what's their story? What, how do they get to where they're at? Right. And I think it's, it's amazing to platform these survivors stories because people do that in the same way. Like, Oh, call your, Collier's okay. So I'm going to make it through. I'm going to make it too. And I never realized that because I just think I'm just Collier and I'm whatever. I'm goofy, silly. I'm, you know, artsy fartsy, whatever you want to call it. I have my own thing that I do, but there are so many people that are impacted by my words. And this same woman, she said, it's the people that you don't see who you have the most impact that you don't hear from. And I hear this all the time from people that write to me. Like you have no idea the people you're helping because it's, it's not me that's reaching out to you right now. It's the people that you don't see that find solace in your words and comfort knowing that they're going to be okay too, which is ultimately the whole reason why I got into this in the first place. 
Collier, thank you. Collier Landry, the latest podcast series just released is called The Survivor Squad. It is co-hosted with Thank Tara you so Moore. much, Collier. Uh, 27 minutes to <laughs> 11, the latest headlines. That was perfect. That should be perfect Thank timing. you so much. Right. And apologies oh, for that mix-up at the beginning. No worries.